Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Today, we're going to talk about changing demographics in Detroit and Southeast Michigan and how they're playing out in two contexts. First, the shimmering restaurant scene here in Detroit. How do we ensure more people of color are participating as both patrons and as owners? And then we're going to talk about how bad housing policy drives demographic change and gentrification in cities like ours. It's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. There's a stat that has been stuck in my mind since I first heard it, and it's stuck there because I think it says so much about Detroit and our region and about change. So the majority of African Americans in Southeast Michigan now live outside the city of Detroit, rather than within it. And that's true for the first time in this region's history. That's what we learned from the 2020 census. Now, there are so many implications from that stat, and I have wanted for a long time now to start peeling them back and talking about what they might mean. Obviously, That stat reflects the continued exodus of African Americans from Detroit to the suburbs, a phenomenon that has been growing for about three decades here in southeast Michigan and is evident in the large numbers of African Americans you see in cities like Southfield or Farmington, Oak Park, in Macomb County and places like Mount Clemens all the way out in western Wayne County in places like Northville and Livonia. But that stat also reflects the increase in Detroit of new residents who aren't African Americans, white and Latino Detroiters in particular. And so whenever you talk about that kind of change, a place that is majority black, but is becoming less black at the same time it is becoming more white, well, now you are talking about all kinds of implications that are worth stopping and thinking about. Why is the change happening? What are the drivers for that change? And how do you ensure that demographic change doesn't bring with it an exacerbation of the inequality that's so strongly breaked into our society and our culture. One thing we know for sure in Detroit is that the movement of black and white people in our region has created a city where some spaces that were once much blacker and felt much blacker, places like parks and libraries, restaurants and shops, today they're much whiter than they they once were. Lots of spaces in the city feel wider than they have been in many decades. And I say that as someone who was born and grew up here in the 1970s and 80s and saw the profound change of the city from white to black and am now watching it change again. The question is, what does this change actually mean? especially for African-Americans who've been cut off from opportunity and investment for a long, long time. We want to talk today about what some of this change looks like and what it means. And let's think of this as the beginning of a really extended conversation that springs from this stat in the 2020 census. And we want to start with 
two contexts that I think are really interesting and really important. A little later, we're going to talk about how housing policy and specifically bad housing policy can drive demographic change in places like Detroit and cities all over the country and lead to and reinforce the dynamic of gentrification that we all are kind of fearful of and are starting to take note of here in Detroit. But first, Lindsey Green is a dining and restaurant critic for the Free Press. And she recently wrote about these changes going on in the city. She's observed that African Americans have been largely left out of the new dining scene in a city that is still about 80% African American. Her piece asks about what happens to a city when certain areas of it begin to change, to gentrify, and offers suggestions as to how longtime city residents can be more included in areas that are developing the fastest. Lindsey Green, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. So let's talk about this observation that as black as Detroit is, still 80% African-American, according to the 2020 census, that that isn't really reflected in the new restaurant scene. And I think any of us who are going to these really wonderful new restaurants and, and yeah. enjoying what they're adding to uh, you know, the, the food selection in our city, I think you can't go and, and not notice that these are wider places uh, than Detroit uh, has been for a really long time. I'm curious, uh, what, what drew your attention uh, to that fact? Well, <laughs> I'm a black woman. <laughs> so, right? You feel like I do, right? <laughs> exactly. It's hard not to notice when you're a black woman or man and you're sitting in a dining room and notice that you're either the only one or one of a few. Um, and, you know, I think we have those moments where we, even if we don't know each other, we look at each other and we have to kind of nod and say, hey, hey buddy. We're here, right? <laughs> exactly. So, <laughs> um, yeah, so it's hard not to notice. And I think I kind of illustrated this in the story, but it really is a stark difference to, you know, be passing such a black community in Detroit on my way into a restaurant and then walking inside and being like, whoa this looks nothing like what I just left, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, so as someone who covers dining and restaurants, uh, what do you hear from both patrons and owners about about this dynamic? There's, And this is something that people have kind of noticed for a while now. Yeah. Um, but, but what do they say about what you're experiencing? Well, it's interesting because... Um, you know, it was a personal observation that, of course, I talked to, you know, my husband about, my friends about, um, but it's actually not something that I'd heard talked about widely among patrons and, and you know, and restaurant owners. Um, I think this story really was sort of a launch pad for this, this conversation. And since the article has come out is, is really when I've I started hearing people um, really agreeing with the sentiment, both black, white, you know, uh, Latin, any people of color. Um, it really resonated with them because they, you know, they've either said, yes, 100 percent. I just went to so and so downtown and I, you know, I was the only black person in that restaurant or, um, you know, if they're a white person, I've heard a lot of people saying, you know, I have definitely noticed this disparity and I actually feel uncomfortable when I recognize that I'm the only or, or that, you know, I'm um, there are no black people in the space or, you know, maybe there's just there's just one. So I think just largely a lot of people are agreeing with the observation that I made. So I, I want to talk separately, I guess, about the the patrons that we see in these mm -hmm. restaurants and mm -hmm. the people who are opening and operating uh, these <laughs> restaurants. Because I think they are two different dynamics, but they, they certainly are, are connected, I think, as well. Um, mm -hmm. but, but talk just a little about what you see as the relationship between 
who's in a restaurant on a nightly basis and who owns and operates that restaurant. Right. Well, the restaurants, I mean, obviously are largely white-owned, um, and, and they're drawing these crowds of, of predominantly, you know, white diners. Um, and I think what I'm, what I'm seeing among restaurant owners, for the most part, is that restaurant, white restaurant owners are starting to um, uh, express their, their noticing the issue, you know, them saying, man, I, you know, I was not expecting that the, that the crowd would be this white or that um, the crowd would, you know, predominantly be from, you know, coming from the suburbs and not actually being um, residents of, of Detroit. And they've been a little bit surprised by that. Um, and so now what I'm seeing restaurant owners doing is they're trying to, um, they're trying to sort of change that and trying to bring more diversity into their spaces, which can be difficult, you know, when you're doing it after you've opened the restaurant, as opposed to really thinking about diversity and inclusion um, as you're building the business so that, you know, you don't end up in this position where you're standing in the dining room and looking around and saying, well, this isn't, this isn't exactly what I anticipated. Hmm. Um, so I think, um, I don't know if that answers your question, but yeah. that's, that's sort of what I'm, what I'm noticing. So, so let's talk about that intentionality on the part of non-African-American restaurant owners. What are some of the things they ought to be thinking more about and doing more of to create more diverse dining rooms, the, the, the kind of levers they can pull. Right. Well, I think, yeah, so it does have to be on the back end. You know, I think as they're building their businesses, they just need to be thinking about us and thinking about, um, you know, what's going to draw us into the space. And so some of the um, suggestions that I offered in, in the story was just sort of, I mean, first things first is when you, you know, when you have the keys to your space, I think that really engaging the community is important. So that means, you know, asking, uh, you know, residents who have been in that neighborhood for, for many, many years. I mean, in, in a lot of cases in these, um, quote unquote, new neighborhoods that are not actually new, um, there are, you know, generations that have been living there mm-hmm. um, and have been, you know, committed to Detroit for a long time. And so just engaging the community and talking to them about, you know, what are the kinds of foods that they eat and what are the kinds of dishes that they like, you know, what are some things that they might want to try, you know. And I think um, some people had had thoughts about that, you know. At the example that I gave in the story was Omar Anani, who's a chef at, or the chef at uh, Saffron de Trois, and his cuisine, excuse me, is Moroccan food. And so, you know, people will ask, well, if you surveyed, you know, the neighborhood, I don't think people would actually say, oh, I'd love Moroccan food. And that's what he did. That's not actually what we're what we're talking about. Right. We're just saying to get a sense of the flavor profiles and the types of dishes that the community enjoys. Mm. You know, maybe it maybe it shows up just in one dish on your menu. Maybe it shows up as a special and maybe it's nothing like, you know, what they're used to, but it has you know, similar notes, or it it just feels familiar to them in a way that, you know, they might actually enjoy it. So, again, just sort of engaging the community. Um, Diversifying your staff is a big one. You know, you want to see black people, black and brown people want to see uh, wait staff that looks like them. You know, they want to feel like they're not the only ones in the room, and, and the first people you see really are your wait staff. So that kind of can help, um, uh, and, and then obviously just thinking about supporting those workers as well. You know, you don't want to just hire black and brown people and then just kind of leave them to fend for themselves. You have to create an environment that can allow them to thrive and they're not being met with, you know, microaggressions and, and biases. So um, supporting your staff is, is really important. So there are a lot of things to do on the back end. Um that can help sort of, you know, drive uh, people of color in the door. Yeah. And, and then on the ownership question, what are we doing wrong or what are we not doing that would create more opportunity for African-Americans and specifically African-Americans who've lived here a long time and may have wanted for a long time to open uh, a restaurant to be part of this, to be part of this boom? I mean, uh, th- th- there's no question 
that this is uh, a rich source of opportunity for people right now in mm-hmm. Detroit in a way that that I don't remember it being uh, in in decades past. How do we get more African Americans to be able to participate in that? Right, that's a great question. I mean. It's, you know, it's no secret that black and brown people just don't have the same access to that capital. And so that's why it's so much harder. I think, you know, one thing that you do notice is that when you're looking at, you know, on the west side on Livernoy, um, you're seeing those black owned businesses there and you're seeing more and more of them. And I think that that's where um, that's sort of where we thrive because there's a community there. Um, there are resources that are being put into, you know, you know, black ownership in those neighborhoods. I think that same, um, that same, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, that same push isn't really there for greater downtown Detroit. And so that's something that I think, um, is on a, on a city level, you know, I think that there are, there are going to need to be more initiatives for people of color to, um, you know, to, to have access to that capital to open businesses down there. Otherwise, it's just going to be so much more um, difficult for us to, you know, see black ownership mm-hmm. in, in those neighborhoods. What about the city's role here? Um, uh, Mayor Mike Duggan has brought in a lot of private money and philanthropy to bring in more tax dollars and try to attract more people uh, to the city. Uh, the, he's not attracting as many African-Americans uh, as right. he is uh, new new white people. Uh, those people are coming. They're spending money. They are building the tax base. But, you know, it creates this tension between them and uh, those of us who have been here a, a really long time. What does he say about this restaurant problem, I guess, uh, and, and whether the city's uh, policies and approach might need to might need to change just a little. Right. Yeah. I think that's a good question. I mean, I do think um, it, it is. It. I think a lot of what I wrote about in the article and a lot of what we're talking about, we're putting the onus on the restaurant owner, right? And that is, you know, that's maybe fifty percent of it, maybe seventy five percent of it. That's mm-hmm. only you know a portion of the conversation. But the other portion is that, you know, policy. I think that um, they're going to need a little bit more help. And so, yes, if, if, if um, you know, Mike Duggan is creating these initiatives to bring people into the city, he's going to need to create some initiatives um, to, to, to allow the residents that have been here for a long time to also be able to participate and and for business owners as well, right, to create some initiatives for black business owners to be able to have access to that capital to open up restaurants um, in greater downtown. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So last question is, who's doing this right? And where are there places that you see a more diverse crowd than you do in in some other places? And what are they doing to get that crowd to to show up there? Yeah. So, you know, I mentioned Omar Anani earlier at Saffron Mm Detroit. He was one of the sort of case studies of a restaurant that's doing it right. Um, And I think just, you know, he had the opportunity to own his his um, building for several years before he opened the brick and mortar restaurant. It was a food truck for, for some years before that. Um, And so, you know, as opposed to just sort of being there and just being isolated, um, he's on Gratiot Avenue uh, adjacent to Eastern Market. Um, He really did engage the community. You know, he helped them during COVID, fed um, uh, residents who were in need of food, you know, during that really, really tough time. Um, And just, you know, going around to say hi, inviting them to the restaurant for tea. You know, he really... Um, has been diligent about engaging that community. So I think that's probably part of the reason why he's been able to drive uh, such a a diverse clientele. Um, You know, and then again, the food, you know, black people love flavor. (laughs) Like, you know, I know that's a really general statement, but for the most part, that's what we're looking for. And, you know, his food really is really flavorful. So I think that's a good example. Um, another example that I would give is Freya. So Freya is in the north end. Uh, they're in Milwaukee Junction. And, 
you know, to be honest, they're not actually driving a diverse crowd, but I think they're a good example of a restaurant that's just trying to be as inclusive as possible. You know, their their general manager, his name is Thor Jones, um, he also runs uh, an organization called Hospitality Included, um, and uh, um, his training session is called Full Hands In, Full Hands Out. And what they do is they, they intentionally train um, black, you know, black people who are interested in breaking into the hospitality industry. Mm. And so the intention is to, you know, kind of create this pipeline where you're getting black workers into the restaurant, but also empowering them to really see um, uh, working in restaurants as a career and looking at hospitality as an industry where they can work their way to management and to ownership. And, and Freya is doing a really nice job of supporting him in, in those efforts. Uh, the training session was actually at Freya, which was pretty cool to see. Yeah. Um, and we're doing, you know, lots of programming that's that's bringing uh, black and brown people into the space, you know, on, on certain nights. Which is which is kind of nice, but it's a way just to create this exposure that would hopefully then say, "Oh, hey, you know, I've never I've never heard of Freya before. Let me check that out." Yeah. So I think they're doing a pretty nice job with that. Yeah. Okay, uh, Lindsey Green, uh, dining and restaurant critic for the Detroit Free Press. It was really great to have you here for this conversation. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Coming up. We are going to continue talking about change and demographic change here in Detroit and Southeast Michigan. We're going to shift the conversation to talk specifically about gentrification, what it is and why cities have much bigger problems to tackle. Jerusalem Demzas, a staff writer at The Atlantic, is going to talk to us about the ways that housing policy and specifically bad housing policy really exacerbate the inequalities that we already live with uh, and make this demographic change much more of a problem. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. As always, thanks for tuning in. If you look around Detroit these days, you can't help but notice neighborhood change. Specific, physical neighborhood change. Things like bike lanes and new apartments and bars. Things that we haven't seen in lots of parts of Detroit for a really long time. And although the term is used really broadly, gentrification generally means economic development injected into a specific neighborhood at the cost of displacing poorer residents who are already living there. Is that what we're seeing in Detroit? Can we think of places where people are essentially being moved out in favor of other people moving in, maybe people with more money, people with different colored skin? Or is it more complex than that? Is something else really going on? Let's be clear. Everybody wants development in their neighborhood. Everybody wants to live in a stable community with trees and parks and bars and grocery stores Detroiters have longed for those things for a really long time. If you think back to what the city was in the 70s and the 80s, how easy it was, even as dark as some of those times were, to live here in neighborhoods and how we lost so much of that in the late 80s and the 90s, which were devastating years for Detroit. How do we get back to that? And how do we get back to it for the people who have lived here for all that time? The African-Americans who make up the majority of the city's population. Why do cities struggle to solve these problems for the people who live in them? And why doesn't 
the presence of new people with more money end up translating into better things for the people who are already there? How come it means in some cases that those folks who were there, poor and working class people, get driven out? In a new piece in The Atlantic, staff writer Jerusalem Demzas wrote about what she sees as the real problem plaguing cities. She says, people who prevent developers from building more homes and different kinds of homes are also preventing low and working class people from climbing the economic ladder. Essentially, she says, housing policy and bad housing policy makes all of these problems look worse. To explain why that's true, here with us is Jerusalem Demzis. Uh, Jerusalem, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, thank you for having me. So I want to start with a question that doesn't get asked a lot, and I alluded to it in my open there. What is gentrification, and is gentrification always what we're seeing when we see neighborhood change and demographic change in cities like Detroit? Yeah, no, it's it's a fantastic question because I think it, as you alluded, it's it's something that we it's a word that we use a lot to describe a lot of different types of change. Um, to give a concrete definition, um, this is one that the Urban Displacement Project, which is a research and policy group at UC Berkeley, defines. Um, they say that gentrification is quote a process of neighborhood change that includes economic change in a historically disinvested neighborhood by means of real estate investment and newer higher income residents moving in as well as demographic change, not only in terms of income level, but also in terms of the changes of education level of racial makeup of residents. So essentially, um, it, it involves new investment, either private or public, and new residents coming in, and that those new residents may uh, also in, uh, usually also indicate a change in demographics. So often they're higher educated, um, they're often white or, or non-black. And so I think that that's kind of what we have as, uh, as a real general uh, definition. But I think what you allude to in your opener is that often what we've started saying is that gentrification is any time change occurs um, and that there is some sort of transaction cost. And those can be um, the transaction costs that come with regular uh, interactions with people that become more fraught because you don't have a long history with them. It can be um, the people that are moving into your neighborhood don't understand the cultural cues or norms of your community and that therefore there's friction. Sometimes that stuff is, is racist. Sometimes it's when um, people assume that you don't live there because this is now an up-and-coming neighborhood, but your family's been there for a long time. Sometimes it can even elevate to the level of police involvement, where the newcomers may view what is uh, community um, you know, norms as disorder, and they weaponize the police in, 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 in order to change the neighborhood. So I think that often what we're talking about here is this question of you know, how do we define what types of change are good or bad, and who gets to say which of those things are good and bad, and then when those things have to be resolved, how do we resolve them? Like who has the power to say, you know, it's worth it to have a new Whole Foods here because that means we have more access to um, fresh groceries, but perhaps that Whole Foods displays something that other people in the community liked. And so I think that this entire conversation is just what we're trying to, is all of us trying to define gentrification and, and you know, often failing to do so in a way that we can get agreement across lots of people. And one of the things that I think is really key to the observation and the argument <clears throat> that you're making here is you are not saying, carte blanche, that it's a bad thing to welcome new people into cities, to welcome development, to, to welcome housing that maybe uh, is more expensive than what already exists in the area, that, that it's, it's too narrow to just think of the problem in those terms. Yeah, I mean, just more specifically here, I think often um, people want to put the onus on the demand side of the equation. So they say the problem is new people who want to come into the city, new people who want to, new businesses that want to form here that are different than the old businesses. And what I'm trying to say is that 
we should want to create a world where there is an abundance of possibility for a bunch of different people to exist. The problem is not that there are young um, urban professionals who are higher educated and often more white who want to enter into these communities. The problem is that our communities are set up to value, uh, set up to only allow a certain number of people to benefit from the gains of growth. So what I mean by this is, let's say, you know, uh, you know, a, a bunch of new people want to move to a, a new neighborhood that's economically and racially diverse. If that neighborhood plans for growth, if they increase the number of homes that are available, if they make sure that there are, um, you know, buses and sidewalks and transit that is available to a growing population, then that growth is positive. You have more people who can have access to a city. You see a greater tax base for that community that they can then reinvest in public goods like education and, and transportation and other things that are important. But what we often see is that communities and uh, city officials don't plan for growth. And when that happens, you're setting up conflict between newcomers and old comers instead of designing a city that can actually accommodate everyone. And so often what we see is that people place the blame on, um, on what they see the visible change, right? They see the change of, of new people coming in. But the real problem is that no one is planning for a growing population. And I think that it's really harmful for us to say that, you know, people who get who already live somewhere get to decide that um, no one else can come there. We, we have a history in this country of that sort of thinking, excluding poor individuals, excluding black and brown families from access to important neighborhoods. And that's what we see today, which is that the mass majority of neighborhoods are not gentrifying in urban locales. They're actually pretty stagnant. You see sa- segregated single family home neighborhoods that are exclusive to very wealthy people and often white people and and that are the descendants of redlining and other forms of um, intentional segregation. The other flip side of the coin, these neighborhoods that are uh, areas of concentrated poverty. I mean, this is a really big problem in Detroit, where these problems, these uh, these neighborhoods have no access to um, public or private investment. They don't even have the problem of managing new growth and dealing with gentrification. They have a much harder problem of concentrated poverty. And so I think that um, the bigger question here is not, are there pains that come with new people and new businesses coming to your neighborhood? It's how do we manage that? Because if we reject it, we're going to get to a place of segregation and stagnation and uh, and poverty. Hmm. I'm talking with uh, Jerusalem Demzas. She's a staff writer at The Atlantic, and her recent piece is titled The Real Villain in the Gentrification Story. We're talking about demographic change, demographic change here in the city of Detroit and in southeast Michigan, what it looks like, what it means, what it's caused by, what it's causing, uh, and how we might think differently about uh, all of that in a way that might bring more opportunity and investment to people, poor people, African Americans, who in our region have long suffered without. Uh, how do we uh, revive uh, parts of the city of Detroit where people have lived for a long time without really basic access to necessities? that uh, any of us would want in the places where we live. Is the answer more people moving in who have more means into those neighborhoods and creating mixed income kinds of communities where uh, the wealthier people's presence attracts the kind of amenities and services that uh, everybody can benefit from? Uh, Or is there a different way? Uh, Should we be wary of new people moving into neighborhoods here in Detroit. As always, we want to have you uh, participate in the conversation here. Uh, Give us a call and talk about what's changing around you and and your community. What part of Detroit do you notice uh, a big change in, in terms of who's there, in terms of what's there, in terms of what's happening uh, in those communities? Uh, What do you think of uh, the way in which the city's changing, and who is it changing to benefit? Do you feel like uh, the benefits are accruing to the people who are moving in, the new people that we see in many different parts of Detroit, uh, or do you think uh, that that the whole city benefits, that uh, the the growth in the tax base that they are uh, helping to build and other things mean that things are maybe getting better, but uh, maybe there's a lag. Uh, in those outcomes. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put comments there, uh, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today 
and we can work you into the conversation that way. Um, I want to start today with uh, Alberta in Detroit. Alberta, welcome to the show. Well, good morning, Stephen. This is Alberta Tinsley Talabi. Hey, and how are you? Yes, I. She is absolutely on point. I live in one of those neighborhoods over here on Pennsylvania, the home that my parents purchased over 80 years ago, and I'm still here. At one time, there were 40 houses on my block. Today, there are only six. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you that many of those homes were destroyed. There's no one reason. But let me say this. Yes, my neighborhood is experiencing um, a lot of diversity now, and I feel that the city needs to come put emphasis on building more affordable housing and low-income housing. People don't even talk about low-income anymore. And let me just give you an example. Uh, This past Saturday, one of my new neighbors, and I hadn't met her. She'd been here for over a year. And I kept saying, I got to knock on her door and let her know that I'm the person behind her and that, you know, she can see my back and I can see her side of her house. And if anything happens, she needs my number and I need hers. Well, over a year, and I never did that. Well, guess what? This Saturday, she was out running her beautiful dog, uh, some kind of doodle. Anyway, (laughs) and another dog, my neighbor's dog, uh, got out. And this woman had the neighbor's dog in one hand and her dog and trying to keep this dog from eating her dog up, okay? (laughs) And without thinking, I was taking my bike out. I jumped down the stairs, ran over, and grabbed my neighbor's dog. Okay, who could have turned on me? But that wasn't even a question. This woman needed help. And I thank God I was there to provide that assistance. So at the end of the day, we have to create an environment where everyone is included and no one's left out. And yes, there are a lot of Detroiters who have stayed, stuck and stayed. And we should be benefiting. And yes, the income or the housing values have gone up. My only concern is that not a, not enough of us are benefiting. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, Alberta, as always, it's great to to hear from you. And and uh, you know, I you and I have talked before about the story of your block and your neighborhood and how it is, uh, you know, Exhibit A of of the change that we've seen in the city over a really long period of time. Uh, Jerusalem, before you answer, I'll I'll also tell you that uh, Alberta was a member of our city council and then a member of our state state legislature. So uh, she's somebody who really does understand how policy drives a lot of these changes. Uh, I I, want to have you respond specifically to the housing question, though, Mm -hmm. that that, that she raises, This, this idea of building affordable housing and setting policy in a way that makes it possible uh, to build affordable housing while you are also welcoming new people who might be building uh, more expensive housing. That, according to you and your piece, is is one of the real keys to preventing gentrification or, you know, significant demographic change when uh, you're welcoming new people to a city. Yeah, so I I think that this is um this is the heart of the problem is just what is the city's housing problem and Detroit obviously um uh, I think I, well let me, let me just say this there there are two problems when we think about um folks who can't afford um housing there is the problem of there isn't existing housing available for them and then there's a secondary problem of they don't have enough money um and both things have to be attacked right so on the one hand on the supply side we need to be building new affordable housing for people because we want folks not to just live in deteriorating housing stock. We want them to be living in places that are accessible, that have um, energy efficient um, infrastructure uh, and and safety uh, innovations that have occurred over the last few decades. Um, And often housing stock um, across the country is extremely old. And especially for folks who are on the lower end of the rental market, it's it's very, very old apartments and homes that they are are renting or, or, or considering buying. And so I think that the first thing here is how do we get enough development of these units um, possible. And I think that that's a part of that is to let the private market handle folks who are on the upper end. So, you know, I don't think that we need to have government intervention for people who make a lot of money. But on the other hand, I do think there needs to be government investment in affordable housing um, for folks um, uh, who are not going to be able to pay that much in rent. And that's because those are those are people for whom the private market is not going to solve. Um, that is maybe not going to be able to afford to um 
to 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 uh, the projects won't pencil out if you can only pay like five hundred dollars a month in rent or below. And so what that means is that the government needs to invest in providing rental vouchers. I think this is something that is growing in um, popularity, is making um, housing vouchers universally available. Um, this is true uh, um, in, across the country that people wait years after they have qualified for a housing voucher to actually receive that. And then when they do, the process is so difficult and so onerous, they often can lose it before being able to actually use it. Um, and that is a huge problem. So making that universally available is the first thing. And that's something the federal government really needs to do. Um, and then the second thing is just, I think the government uh, uh, at local level can actually invest in affordable housing by working with affordable housing developers um, to make sure that they have access to um, new lots, they have access to funding and financing in order to be able to uh, develop. But often when I'm talking to affordable housing developers across the country, the biggest obstacle they often face in building affordable housing and in low-income housing is the politics of the local environment that they're in. Um, people, and this is something that happened in, in Los Angeles recently as um they approve $1 billion for affordable housing development, but people don't want that housing development in their neighborhood, or they have thoughts about what it should exactly look like, how many people they're willing to have there. And this process of trying to actually figure out a site to develop that housing, um, often it's homelessness housing, elderly housing, low-income housing, is so costly because it costs so much delays, it costs all these lawyers, you have to have all these um, extensive meetings, um, and it drives up the cost of development to the point where it becomes impossible for even affordable housing developers um, who have the backing of the city, who have the backing of a billion dollars in investment to build that those units. And so in Los Angeles, very few units have gotten built. This uh, measure was approved over six years ago, and it was supposed to be building 10,000 units over 10 years, and they haven't even come close to half of that. And so um, this is one of the situations where I think that we need to really think clearly about what processes are we developing at the local level to make sure that when we're trying to develop affordable housing and low-income housing, that we're actually making it possible to build that easily and quickly and not really default towards these long, onerous um, conversations about, you know, the very best place to put it, because it's really a crisis right now. And in crisis times, we have to move quickly. Yeah. Okay. When we come back, we're going to continue this conversation about demographic change, about gentrification, about housing and housing policy. Also continue to hear from you guys on the phones and on social media. Jerry in Detroit, uh, Ryan in Harrison Township, Levi in Southfield. We'll get to you next. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET is your connection to what's happening in Detroit. WDET is your place for open dialogue about the issues that impact you. Stay in the know. This is WDET FM, Detroit's NPR station. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We're talking about demographic change here in Detroit uh, and uh, in southeast Michigan. Uh, my guest is Jerusalem Demzas, a staff writer for The Atlantic, who recently wrote a piece called The Real Villain in the Gentrification Story. Uh, we're talking about housing policy as well and the ways in which it influences those things. Uh, as always, we want to hear from you on the phones and on social media. 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter, uh, put the comments there, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation. Let's go to Jerry in Detroit next. Jerry, welcome to the show. Good morning, Stephen and Jerusalem. Hey. Hi. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, the neighborhood that's changing, you know, near me. Mm -hmm. um, um, are you at all familiar with the uh, West Village neighborhood on the near east side? Sure. Next to Indian Village, uh, yes. Uh, yes. Um, there's a lot of um, a lot of new businesses popping up there. There's this new there's this new apartment that just that just went up on the corner of Kirchhoffville and Van Dyke. Mm -hmm. And um, um, my feelings about um, gentrification, um, um, you know, 
I really, really don't mind, you know, whether whether or not the, it's gentrified because we needed a, a lot of new people in the neighborhood. And plus, there are a lot of, you know, new businesses that have popped up in the neighborhood, places like um, like um, there, there are some African-American owned places in the, in the neighborhood, um, sure. places like um, Detroit Vegan Soul. Um, there's this other there's this other place called Sister Pie, wonderful place mm-hmm. um, owned by Lisa Ludwinski. A great place. Um, it was a neighborhood that um, that I spent my some of my early my early childhood on. My family had lived there um, lived there until we lived on Van Dyke until we um, moved to um, Bewick Street in the um, in the early 1970s. This was when I was I was a very small child. Um, um, what I noticed in the neighborhood is that a lot of it, it's not just mostly um, white people moving back in. It's young, younger whites, mm-hmm. and they yeah. have, um, and they have, um, they definitely have um, a little bit of an entrepreneurial spirit, and I think they've, um, you know, believe in this, believe in the city, and I, I think in, in some ways, it is good for the neighborhood to come back because it's been down for such a long time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Jerry, you're you're absolutely right about what's going on over there and and how dynamic it is and how much it feels different from the way it did just you know a summer ago or or, or two summers um, uh, ago. Uh, you know the test I think over there is again uh, you know five years from now, ten years from now. What do the demographics in that neighborhood look like? You know, does it maintain, um, you know, access for people who are not wealthy? Uh, does it uh, does it maintain access uh, for people who are not who are not white? And, and by that, I don't mean in a legal sense, but but certainly in a cultural sense. Uh, and and I don't know what the I don't know what the 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 kind of particular. Um, data points are there about that, or what the particular levers that need to be pulled uh, are. But, but I, I think that is the question we, we kind of got to ask about it. And, and Jerusalem, maybe you can talk about that, not just that particular neighborhood, which you may not be familiar with, but, but this dynamic again. There's a lot going on in a short period of time. A lot of money, all of a sudden, concentrating on one area. How do you make sure? that people are not squeezed out uh, of, of the progress? Yeah, no, I think this is the exact right question to be asking because, um, as you mentioned, uh, you know, th- these people who are moving in, often they have, they're really committed there uh, to the neighborhood. They're excited about living in a city environment. They're willing to give back to their community. And I think directing that energy in a productive way and making sure that it's in concert with, um, uh, you know, folks who may be more marginalized in terms of access to capital or access to government institutions is what's really important here. And there are ways that you can do this. I think one of the ways to do this is that you have, um, uh, you make sure that there is more access given to long-standing residents, um, whether it's for capital, but if they say that there's important historical areas near them, um, making sure you have a process of understanding what those um, important places are before and as this change occurs so that you don't have losses of really important institutions. I think also like cultivating public spaces where there's diversity is really important. So mm-hmm. making sure that you know, you're know you having events or block parties or things like that where um, people come together across different community lines and you have um, you know, politicians who are there who are working, you have community leaders and nonprofits who are there who are making sure that it's a process of integration. Because I do think that the big thing we're talking about here that often is not named is that this is the only way that America has integrated is in the process of gentrification. And we have not done it in the best way possible, obviously, because a lot of people have been left out of those gains. But I think the, the, that, that that is the big issue here is how do we actually do integration in an equitable way and also recognizing that some of the change is going to be uncomfortable, that perhaps if you live, you were used to living in a community that used to look one way and it starts to grow, even if no one gets displaced, you might see a lot more people from a different um, racial background than you're used to seeing in that area. And that might feel weird or strange for some period of time because that's actually what integration usually does feel like. Yeah. Um, 
I think the thing that's important to keep in mind is for um, officials and leaders in these communities to constantly be pointing to the benefits that this brings and also to point to what the flip side is, which is segregated communities, which is what we've seen for most of American history and what we see mostly across the American landscape now. And implementing policies that are you know, providing jobs to lower income folks, making sure that the people who get access to the new work that is provided by these new businesses, um, that they are maybe preferencing individuals who are in those communities. There are a bunch of different ways to be doing this. Um, and I think that the biggest thing, though, is, of course, we've talked about is on the housing side, is making sure that there is a high quality, affordable housing for everyone in these places. So not just lower income people who are currently there can move to these neighborhoods, but that when neighborhoods start to grow and people see it as a place they want to move to, that the only people who can move there can't just be rich people, that poor individuals can move there too, that can get access to those new neighborhoods that are vibrant, that have access to transit, that have access to you know new private investment. Those things are really important. And so I think that the, a combination of just government engagement in this process of integration and making sure places like nonprofits or churches or other community institutions are involved as well and not just viewing all changes bad is what's really important here yeah yeah okay uh jerusalem demzas uh we could continue this conversation for many hours today and uh <laughs> our callers uh, are backed up too trying to get into the conversation but i, I want to thank you for being here uh it was really great to have you for uh for this talk yeah, thank you so much. Have yeah. a great day. Yeah, And to the callers that we did not get to, a reminder that uh, we're going to come back to this subject over and over again, again, uh, because uh, of the change that uh, that we are experiencing here in the city of Detroit. So thanks for calling and uh, don't uh, don't forget to listen again and, and maybe next time you'll get in. OK, uh, that's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when uh, we'll talk with Bryce Covert about her article in The New York Times asking why we have more anti-poverty policies for elders than we do for children. This is 1019 WDET-FM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.